Welcome to Real Impeachment with Ross Garber. This is Ross Garber. Our goal is to understand what is going on with the impeachment process, and we're trying to do it from a nonpartisan angle. Uh, Our guest today is Peter Baker, the chief White House correspondent for The New York Times. He's the author of several books, including The Breach, Inside the Impeachment and Trial of William Jefferson Clinton. Uh, It is a fabulous book. And, you know, as we're trying to look forward to what a Senate trial might look like, that book, I think, is a terrific resource. The Senate is all about tradition. There have been only two other impeachment trials in our nation's history. So I think for a lot of senators, the Clinton situation will be a benchmark that they'll that they'll reference. And Peter's book takes you into the back rooms and onto the Senate floor uh, and, and really lays out how the Senate conducted that trial, how they came up with the processes and procedures, how the senators worked for the White House. Uh, it is it is really a terrific book, and there's no more astute or articulate observer of the impeachment process than Peter Baker. I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. Uh, I really loved my conversation with Peter Baker. Welcome, Peter. We're going to get to the the Trump impeachment stuff in a second. But back when you were covering the the Clinton White House and then wrote a book on the Clinton impeachment process and the trial, uh, which, as I've told everybody, is is indispensable. I, I think around that time, I was sort of slaving away as an associate at a big law firm. My question is, how did how did you get the guts to write uh, kind of the definitive book on the Clinton impeachment process? Uh when you know, presumably, lots of people were working on that same subject. Well, look, it was an extraordinary story, obviously, and I had spent 13 months as a reporter covering it day in, day out, literally 24/7. Even before the social media era, uh, it was a pretty intense period. And um, when it was over, I wanted to go back and learn what we didn't know. And the thing that really struck me in, in reporting it was understanding how little we understand, how little we really know about what's happening, even in front of our eyes, at the moment it happens. And that, you know, there's a value in revisiting and, and trying to reconstruct and understand what was going on behind the scenes on these big big Washington events like this uh, impeachment and trial. And, and the book um, that came out of it, I think, you know, told a fuller picture. And it was uh, for a writer, for a journalist and author, it was a really, uh, uh, you know, great opportunity to learn what I didn't know. As you were embarking on it, did, did you wind up having doubts about, well, wait a minute, there are probably, I don't know, a dozen other, you know, great reporters in Washington probably working on the same thing? Yeah, a lot of, a lot of people uh, were, and, and, and there were, as you say, a lot of great journalists, a lot of great writers. Um, the one who was doing the thing that was closest to what I was doing was Jeff Tubin. Um, obviously, Bob Woodward was doing a book that included a lot of this stuff. There were the, the reporters like Mike Isakoff and Sue Schmidt, who had uh, places in you know, integral role in the, in the story, writing their own books. And so, yeah, there there were there was a lot of competition. But I think that this is the only book 
that really focused in very strongly on the impeachment and trial part of it, right? So other people have talked about the yeah. Ken Starr investigation or about the uh, lawsuits or whatever. This really focused on the, the struggle between the president and the Congress, the most elemental part of our democracy is the separation of, these, of, of power. And this was a struggle for power, it was a struggle about accountability, a struggle to define our democracy. What do you do when a president does something wrong? How do you, uh, how do you address that in our system? And I think that um, that was the part that seemed to me the most important because I thought it would have real ripple effects down through the time. And the, yeah. <laughs> what I didn't imagine yeah, yeah, yeah. is we'd be back here, in fact, you know, applying the lessons that we learned from that in, in just uh, a relatively short uh, period later. Thinking about those lessons, uh, you know, you've described uh, the the Trump war room, I think, is a war room of one person with a cell phone. And, yeah. you know, I, I've set up lots of war rooms for, for public officials. And, you know, there are a bunch of goals when I set up the war room. It's, you know, obviously to survive an impeachment, but also to allow continued governance to, you know, coordinate as appropriate with other lawyers in the process and 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 to prevent the staff from, you know, obstruction issues that often come up in these things. Do you think the Trump folks are going to wind up setting up a legal war room, not just a communications war room? And, and do you think there may be consequences if he doesn't? Yeah, I think that they probably will. They may not call it that. They may not organize it in as, you know, sort of structured a way as, as you were doing. Um, but they have sort of staffing up a little bit. They've hired a couple people to help out with the communications, Tony Saya and uh, uh, Pam Bondi, who are now out, you know, speaking for the president a little bit more. They've been trying to hire some lawyers to help uh, help out with the fight. I think if, particularly if it gets to a Senate trial, which does look like it will, they're going to, I, I, it'd be hard to imagine they don't bring on, you know, some extra legal help. Uh, that's certainly what Bill Clinton did. Uh, he got uh, Greg Craig to come in. He got uh, Senator Dale Bumpers to come in on top of the, uh, the lawyers who are already there. And he had Chuck and Ruff in the, in the White House. He had Chuck Ruff already as a White House counsel, right? And he had, of course, uh, David Kendall, who had represented him for many years on Whitewater. Uh, but they bulked up for the trial. And I think that's, it, it would be hard to imagine President Trump not doing something similar. So what about the the House process? We're now sort of, you know, uh, deeply into the House impeachment process. Uh, you know, uh, they've finished up we think public hearings at the Intel Committee, the Judiciary Committee is about to start its work. Have you found this House process more partisan than than the Clinton process? Well, essentially, we thought back then that the city and the country were just as politically polarized as they could ever be. We thought it was so partisan. We thought it was so uh, divided. And that was the essential story of the moment. And I think, if anything, obviously, it seems even more so today. Um, both camps are locked into their their positions. Uh, there's clearly no movement. I, you know, last time around, 20 years ago, 31 Democrats voted yeah. to open an impeachment inquiry. They didn't vote for impeachment, but they, 31 of them at least thought that it was worth investigating. In the end, only five Democrats voted for an article of impeachment, but they started off at least with the idea that there, at least for a lot of Democrats, there was something to look at. Hey, and this this time, time around, obviously, no, it's just straight down, straight down the line. No Republicans voted for an impeachment inquiry. And I don't think you'll see any Republicans vote for impeachment itself. It'll be a party line uh, uh, vote if, if and when they get to that next month. And what accounts for the difference, do you think? Why, why, why then did, you know, in such a hyper-partisan 
environment did 31 Democrats leave their president and vote to start the impeachment process and zero Republicans did yeah, that Yeah, it's a good time. question, right? I think, well, a couple of things. One is I think that just broadly speaking, even putting Trump aside, I think that the town has become just more uh, divided, more polarized. I think that, uh, um, you know, members of the House are much more worried today than they were 20 years ago about challenges from their from within their own party than they are about reaching out to the middle. Districts are drawn in a way that uh, for most of them, um, there's less of a chance of losing in a general election than there might be of losing in a primary election. At least that's the fear. So back then, these 31 Democrats went ahead with an impeachment inquiry in part because they felt their districts would look down on them if they didn't at least take it seriously, right? They had to at least look like they were taking it seriously, whether they were or not. And they, they would be a, there would be a penalty if they didn't. Today, it's the other way around. If you're a Republican and look like you're taking this seriously, the, the, the penalty will be uh, from your own party, that from the, from the conservative side, the Trump-based side. So I think that, that you know, that the, the incentive structure has changed in politics over 20 years. The incentive structure is pulling people gravitationally even further away from the middle, further away from working with each other on the left and the right. And, um, and that makes it uh, harder to come together, even on just basic legislation, much less something as, as, as big as an impeachment. In Clinton, they, the House adopted pretty much the same rules and procedures as in Nixon. In fact, I think they were the identical rules and procedures as in Nixon. You know, this time Nancy Pelosi didn't do that. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things that, that you know, I, I've kind of wondered about is, is why that was the case. Why wouldn't she just adopt the same rules as were, you know, as were used in, in Nixon and then adopted unanimously uh, by the Judiciary Committee in in Clinton? Do you have a sense of that? I don't. I mean, I haven't. I haven't talked with her, so I don't know for sure how she's thinking. I haven't studied the rules enough to know um, precisely what's new and what's, and what's the same. But one of the thing that's definitely different is this process they have of having the investigation conducted by the House Intelligence Committee before you even go to the House Judiciary Committee, right? Yeah. So in theory, the House Judiciary Committee will have more uh, opportunities for the president's lawyers to participate than they have had so far in the Intelligence Committee, where they haven't had any uh, opportunity to participate. Partly that's because, in this case, the House Intelligence Committee is, in effect, the special prosecutor, because back in Nixon and Clinton, both cases before Congress took up the matter of impeachment, there had been special prosecutors who did investigations with grand juries and subpoenas and so forth, all those tools that they have, and they provided either a roadmap or a full report in, in, in the Starr case, Ken Starr's case, to the Congress so that they didn't need to do any, or at least not, uh, they didn't really need to necessarily do a lot of fact-finding uh, of their own. In this case, they, there is no special prosecutor, so it, it was up to, you know, Adam Schiff, in effect, played the special prosecutor by, you know, through his committee and doing the investigating. So I'll be watching carefully when we get to the Judiciary Committee to see what the difference between that stage of the process versus the Clinton stage of the process, because that'll be the most apples to apples comparison. In Nixon, the uh, you know the president's lawyers were able to actually you know cross-examine witnesses, call and cross-examine witnesses. John Dean testified, you know, at the House level, and uh, Nixon's lawyers got got a whack at him. You know, in Clinton. At, by the time of the Judiciary Committee, as you noted, you know the the Star report had already come out, and I think just a few uh, witnesses, kind of tangential witnesses, testified. And, but then Ken Starr actually testified, you know, in public, and he was cross-examined by uh, the president's lawyers. I mean, do, do you have a sense of how how it's going to work this time? 
I don't for sure. I, I think you're right about that. The, 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 because, again, we had the special prosecutor, Ken Starr was the only fact witness basically 20 years ago. And, and you're right, Ken, David Kendall got a chance uh, to question him. It was quite a dramatic day. I remember it very vividly. The two of them had been jousting for years, and to have them go at it head-to-head that day 20 years ago was very dramatic. Again, the difference is that, uh, and they didn't have, the Judiciary Committee all those years ago didn't have Monica Lewinsky or Linda Tripp or, or Kathleen Willey or, or John Podesta or any, you know, any of these people come up and do repeating what they had told Ken Starr's grand jury. If you look at the Intelligence Committee, what they've just done the last two weeks as akin to what Ken Starr did, remember the president's lawyer didn't go into the grand jury to question uh, witnesses either. So what the Clinton people would tell you is they didn't get a chance to cross-examine fact witnesses against him, except for Ken Starr, who really wasn't a fact witness in a direct sense. He didn't actually participate in the events. He was the prosecutor. So it's hard to make direct comparisons, but um, I think you're right. The question will be what kind of, you know, will the president's lawyers get enough due process, enough uh, participation in the Judiciary Committee that will look like a, at least a fair process? Um, my guess is they won't consider it to be fair no matter what. Uh, my understanding is Jerry Nadler, the Judiciary Committee chairman, wants to give them more, um, wants to bend over backwards more to them than, than Adam Schiff did. Um, but I don't know for sure. Like, is he going to give them... Uh, you know the opportunity to subpoena people. Is he going to is he going to give them a chance to do cross examination? Are they going to recall witnesses that they've already had in front of the intelligence committee? Um, I don't know anything about that at this point. Yeah, and the rules actually give Nadler very broad discretion whether he lets them do anything at all in terms of you know calling and cross examining witnesses because there's that that provision in the rules that say says if uh, uh, the president and the administration don't comply with lawful process then you know, Nadler can decide to not allow them to, to you know, call witnesses and cross-examine witnesses. Right, exactly. That's that. That Nancy Pelosi put that into the into the into the rules. Clearly, an ang- you know, out of out of peak over the White House saying that they weren't going to cooperate. We didn't have, I think. I don't think we had the same thing 20 years ago. On the other hand, what the Democrats would say is that Clinton did cooperate, and so they didn't, you know, didn't necessarily need it. But again, the process is different in the sense that 20 years ago they were not, you know, that Henry Hyde and the Judiciary Committee were not asking for the White House at that point to provide uh, testimony and documents because they already had what they were going to use. What they did ask the president for was to answer his questions, and they sent over, remember quickly, 82 questions to Bill Clinton that he had to answer under oath uh, and he sent them back and they and they one of the things that they decided during the the hearings that they had was those answers themselves were were uh, insufficient and not not fully truthful and so that actually became part of the articles of impeachment debate yeah do you, do you have any sense of whether uh, the, the Judiciary Committee is going to do that this time around yeah it's a good question I haven't heard that the president the other day responding to something that Nancy Pelosi said on television said he'd like to actually testify he may even do it in person do I think he'd actually do that no probably not he said that a lot during the Mueller probe. He said, yeah, I'd like to testify to the grand jury. In the end, he didn't. The lawyers obviously would advise against it. And I'm pretty sure that Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel, would literally throw his body in front of the motorcade if the <laughs> president thought about doing any war, any lawyer would. Um, but you never know. This president does surprise us. And it, and even if he doesn't do anything in person, it is conceivable that there would be something in writing. Uh, he did do that in the end for, for Robert Mueller. Um, but we, we haven't heard anything, uh, anything all that serious yet about it. Yeah, and I'm also actually wondering whether uh, the exact opposite could happen, uh, whether the president's people, whether his lawyers would say, you know what, uh, the House process is totally unfair. It's totally partisan. We're going to wait till the Senate to do 
anything. I, you know, I think if I were representing the president, that's something that I'd, I'd seriously consider. Do you, do you have any sense of whether that might be a possibility? And then if if they do actually participate at the Judiciary Committee, whose lawyers would be? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I, I, look, the diff- that's the other difference, right? Is that 20 years ago, both House and Senate were Republicans, so it's not that Bill Clinton had a whole lot better, you know, chance with with one house versus the other in terms of, you know, arranging the, the rules of the process. This time around, if you're Trump, you're looking at an opposition house, but a friendly leadership, obviously, in the Senate. Why wouldn't you wait to do more stuff in the Senate Would you have, where you'd have a more uh, more of an opportunity? Just yesterday, of course, he met with six senators to talk about this. He met with six of the jurors, if you will, and they discussed, you know, what kind of trial they'd like to have. That obviously was not something Clinton could do 20 years ago. So he does have that advantage uh, this time around that uh, uh, in being able to shape what the trial might look like, what opportunities he would have to present his case, and perhaps, in fact, you know, challenge the Democrats on things like Hunter Biden and and, uh, and the whistleblower and all that. Yeah, because if nothing changes, I mean, we we saw how Representative Heard kind of came out after the the intel hearings and said, you know what, I don't love what happened, but I don't think it's uh, it's impeachable. So unless something big happens, right, it's unlikely uh, the president's going to lose Republicans based on what happens in the Judiciary Committee. So he, he may decide to to just sit it out. It'll, it'll be interesting to see, right? Well, I think that's right. I think that at this point, you know, absent some new information, absent some dramatic change that we don't know about at the moment, um, you know, the clear pathway here appears to be a party line vote in the Judiciary Committee, a party line vote in the House floor, and then a Senate trial of, of a few weeks that ultimately ends in, in acquittal. Again, we could change, that, you know, anything can happen, um, but that's currently the way things look. So if you're President Trump, nobody wants to be impeached, but you have at least the, the reassurance that you have a pretty good shot of, of, of beating the rap, if you will, in the Senate and staying in office until, at least until the end of your term and then taking the case to the voters. And getting to the Senate trial and, and your book, um, you know, sort of goes into incredible detail about the Clinton Senate trial process. But, you know, basically, you know, how did that work? Because it's not like the it's not like court where there are you know strict rules of procedure and rules of evidence. You know, how, how did it work in the Clinton situation? How, how the Senate trial work? Well, they just made it up as they went, basically. I mean, look, <laughs> this is a re- it was a really interesting thing. Of course, they, they had there had been one Senate trial once before. That was in 1868 with Andrew Johnson. But otherwise, there was no real precedent. So they literally made up the rules on the fly as they were going. They were trying to figure out how do we do this, all the questions you just asked, not a courtroom. So what do we do? The Constitution doesn't give us a whole lot of guidance on this. It tells us basically two things. One, the Senate tries the case, and it it requires a two-thirds vote for conviction and removal. And two, the Chief Justice presides. But that's all it says. So what you saw was a a very different situation, I think, than they'll see now. You saw Senate... Republican leader Trent Lott sit down with Senate Democratic leader Tom Daschle, and the two of them basically cut a deal, and they they were both determined to get through that trial without the kind of big, giant, explosive partisan blow-up that they had seen in the House. They, they were going to be on opposite sides in the final vote. They knew that, but they just wanted to get through it in a dignified and and and, and, and respectful and uh, 
civilized process. And so they had a 100 to 0 vote to adopt the rules for this trial, which they just made up basically on the fly. 100 to 0. Think about that. Can you imagine a 100 to 0 vote today on anything, even on post offices today? I don't think that would happen, yeah, right. much less the rules of the game. And they, they made up the rules. So the rules were basically, you know, senators had to sit in their chairs, which is something that goes against the grain. They had to keep quiet, really goes against the grain. And the House managers, that's the prosecutors, were allowed to come over. They were allowed to present their case. The president was allowed to have his lawyers on the floor and present their case. But they didn't want a big, drawn-out process. They wouldn't allow the managers to have more than three witnesses. They just, you know, the managers wanted a whole lot. Senate guy said, look, just boil it down to these three witnesses. And they were not going to allow them to do it on the floor. The last thing senators wanted, frankly, in either party, was to have Monica Lewinsky grilled on the floor about her sex, uh, you know, experiences with the President of the United States. That was something nobody wanted to see. So they did depositions, right? They did depositions, exactly right, on, on videotape, and then the managers and the Clinton lawyers were allowed to use pieces from those videotapes to make their arguments. And, and so in Clinton, n- no witnesses testified on the floor, right? No witnesses testified on the floor, absolutely not. They brought on TV screens, right? And that was something that really also kind of challenged the traditionalists who hated it. Bob Byrd, the senator from West Virginia, who was sort of the keeper of the, of the traditions, just was aghast at the idea that they would have big screens on the floor of the Senate, and he made them put tarps over them so they would be hidden when they weren't used at the very least so they wouldn't offend. Of course, by doing so, that caused them to overheat and then they they had a hard time getting the TVs even to work. (laughs) Talk a little bit about the role of the chief justice because, you know, the Constitution says the chief justice shall preside, but it it doesn't define what presiding means. And in Clinton, the chief justice was William Rehnquist, who had actually written a book on the only other impeachment trial. So he, he kind of knew what the chief justice did in that case. What did, what did Rehnquist, you know, what was his job? And it, it, there's a great anecdote in your book. I, among many, I, I, I thought uh, the, the, the deal with the microphone, I thought was, was sort of a, an interesting story. No, you're exactly right. Look, the senators wanted to make clear to Chief Justice Rehnquist that, you know, sir, we're, we're glad you're here. Welcome to our chamber. But it is our chamber. And they were going to make, they were to stay in charge, even if he was the presiding officer. They wanted to make clear to him, in effect, there was kind of a ceremonial role in a way. And they, and you're right, they, he asked, how do I turn on and off the microphone? They said, you don't, sir, we do. <laughs> right. Well, we'll let you know when we need you. Tell you that doesn't tell you who's in charge. That nothing else will, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. But there's no guarantee that Chief Justice Roberts will adhere to to that precedent. No, but he's a pretty traditional guy. I, I would imagine he probably would. And I imagine it's probably in his interest, you know, uh, in his natural inclination to be kind of a restrained figure to to to, to probably follow that precedent. My guess is he doesn't want to be too heavily involved and put a, a you know. A, a firm hand on it, and it, I think that's that's my guess. Without knowing him very well, is that that his inclination would be to be relatively restrained about that. And you had mentioned that that uh, the majority and minority leader sort of both sat down and sort of ironed out the process. What was the role of the the president's lawyers back then uh, in in agreeing to the process and procedures? In the Senate. Well, I mean, look, the senators they allow the, 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 the president's lawyers to be on the floor. He had both the White House counsel and other government lawyers, and he had private lawyers, David Kendall, uh, Dale Bumpers, and, and uh, Nicole Seligman. So it was a mix of, of, of lawyers that he chose. They didn't try to stop him from, you know, having anybody of his choice. Um, they sat uh, 
on the side that the Republican senators were sitting on, and the House managers, who were Republicans, sat on the side that the Democrats were sitting on. Which neither side liked, right? Right. Each of them were brought in separately to take a tour of the floor, and each of them said, well, can, can we move our table to the other side? We'd feel more comfortable. And both cases there said, no, sorry, this is the way it worked in Johnson. This is the way it's going to work now. So, um, but it was a pretty, you know, it was it was momentous and at times, you know, obviously very contentious. But it was very, um, it was a dignified process. It was not, there was not a lot of shouting. There was not a lot of anger on the floor of the Senate. It was it was presented in a very sober way, even if it was not a very sober topic. Yeah, and and do you have a sense of sort of this time will will the president and his lawyers have more influence over the process? You know, given that the Republicans have the majority. And- Certainly, I, they're not. They 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 know they can count on not being, you know, boxed out in the Senate the way they were in the House. And, and that's an advantage that they have that they, uh, the Clinton people didn't have. One of the main questions that I think raises is what are the odds that Hunter Biden is going to be subpoenaed to testify in the Senate? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I certainly, I think a number of Republicans would like to do that. They'd like to make sure that the, uh, you know, attention is turned from the president to Biden as much as possible. They've certainly made that case in the House. I don't know. It's so interesting to see. Senate Republicans are different than House Republicans, as a general rule. And, and while I think that they're sympathetic to the president's case and that they certainly are sympathetic in some ways to the argument about Hunter Biden, whether they would want to do that, I'm not sure. I mean, I think that you haven't seen them do it yet. I mean, there's no reason why, with the majority in the Senate, they couldn't have already been having their own hearings into Burisma and Biden all along. Senator Graham owns, you know, as chairman of the Judiciary Committee, he's been a very strong supporter of the president, but he hasn't yet just use the power that he already has to, 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 to showcase this case, uh, this issue. Now, partly it's because he and, and Joe Biden have been friends, and it may be that for the senators, as opposed to the House members, uh, you know, they're reluctant to, you know, sort of get into that. Uh, but that's something that Republicans, certainly President Trump's supporters will push for and say, you know, you can't uh, just have these uh, witnesses that Democrats want, why don't you have some that we want? You know, presumably the president is now learning more about the process and, and realizes that, uh, you know, he might be able to arrange for subpoenas to, you know, Hunter Biden to, you know, Chalupa and, and make the Senate piece more about, you know, those issues, what happened in 2016 in Burisma um, and especially going into primaries and caucuses, which start in uh, in February for the Democrats, not very far away. And 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 I wonder if there's going to be a little, you know, push and pull with the 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 Senate majority about how much the president's going to be able to do there. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I, I, again, it depends on how much the Senate really wants to drag us out, how involved it wants to be, or whether it wants to do something uh, you know, relatively narrow and, and, and focused and get it all done with. If the outcome is already preordained, then the debate will be, should we just go ahead and dispose of it in a relatively expeditious way, or do, or do we want to like use it to showcase uh, the, the this, that, the other thing? And the, the people you need to look to are people like Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, uh, Cory Gardner, these handful of Republicans who are probably not on the fence necessarily, that's the wrong way to put it, but at least want to feel the need to show at the very least their constituents at home that they took this seriously and are not necessarily going to want to appear to be in lockstep, even though they might be with the president on the final vote. So that's where Mitch McConnell has to worry. He's got 53 votes. We presume that the uh, uh, vice president can't break a tie in this procedure. That's at least the assumption. I don't know if it's been tested before. And that means he can only afford to lose three votes. So he has to be 
he, he can only be so aggressive in setting the rules um, if he doesn't want to lose uh, lose the majority on one. Yeah, and we, we might wind up with another round of issues with, you know, the, the subpoena power of Congress again, right? Because, you know, the House managers may want to subpoena, you know, Mick Mulvaney and, and Secretary Pompeo and others, and the president may want to subpoena Hunter Biden, who might want to have a lot of reasons for not showing up uh, and and not invoking his Fifth Amendment. Uh, and and that potentially heads down sort of a weird uh, sort of play within a play, within a play, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That would happen literally at the moment that Biden, Joe Biden, the father, was on the ballot in Iowa starting at the beginning of February, New Hampshire, and so forth and so on. So this, the, the, the context, the surround sound, the, the backdrop is is uh, is rather extraordinary. You know, as we head into into the next phase of the process, any any surprises or potential surprises you're keeping an eye out for? Because there's a lot going on in addition to what's you know specifically going on you know inside the house you've got subpoena battles you've got you know an investigation of Rudy Giuliani and the southern district you got a whole lot of stuff anything in particular you know you're keeping an eye on that might potentially come up and kind of blow the whole thing up. Well, the thing that seems to me that's still kind of an open question is, are we going to get any additional um, witnesses on the issue of the Ukraine thing that change our understanding or amplify our understanding? Remember, some of the most important central characters in this were not called or were called but refused to come, right? Rudy Giuliani, John Bolton, Mick Mulvaney, uh, uh, you know, a handful of others. And, and these are people, you know, if, if, if some of the witnesses we heard from the last two weeks were secondhand, which is the criticism that Republicans had, these people are clearly not secondhand. They're right in the middle of the room, and what they would have to say would be would be fascinating. Now, we may not ever get to hear them. The, the House Intelligence Committee is finishing up its part of this without hearing from them. The Democrats have made a calculated decision that they're not going to wage a long court fight and delay the process. That in effect they're going for expeditious over comprehensive. Uh, but it's possible down the road, you know, a court will rule on something, and then maybe they could be brought in later in the process, either at the Judiciary Committee or. Maybe Maybe in a Senate trial, and that would be fascinating to hear what they have to say. Right now, there's a lawsuit that 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 uh, has been filed by John Bolton's deputy uh, that's scheduled to be heard in oral arguments in district court here in Washington on December the 10th. The, the the House will be right in the thick of its articles of impeachment at that point. The district judge, we don't know how fast he would rule, and what we don't know is if he rules, would John Bolton, who seems to be depending on this court to make a decision for him, whether he would wait till there was an appeal or not, whether he would take a ruling from the district court as being, you know, decisive. And that, that, these are all questions we don't know the answer to. Yeah. And you've got a great piece on that in the, in the times and, and Bolton is now back on Twitter. And so uh, yeah. we're, we're watching <laughs> With a little bit too. of a tease today. I think he's trying to, I think he's gotten, uh, <laughs> he's gotten much of Washington sort of in the Twitter, if you will, about it. Well, Peter Baker, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you very much. Good talking to you. Thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I really love my conversation with Peter Baker. Uh, as you can see, he knows a ton and I think is a great resource to watch in the in the New York Times. If you want to reach me, feel free to shout me out on Twitter at Ross Garber, and I'll talk to you all next week. <laughs>